Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome again, it's Brendan here with Mark, episode 235, Friday, April the 1st, 2022. Welcome to our listeners, welcome to all our new listeners and a very special welcome, Mark, to our new subscribers. We always love having new subscribers and um, I get a I get a nice warm feeling in my heart, Mark, when I hear from somebody that they've just found our podcast recently and then they're cranking it back to episode one to try and I ch- that- churn through the 234. Um, I, got, I, got a, I got a, um, a, a question about uh, some... It was a bearded dragon question from another vet, and it was something that you and I had talked about on the podcast. So I sent them, I said, oh, do you listen to podcasts? And I sent them a, a link to the podcast. They sent back, oh, my God, that's a body of work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, um, yeah, I think we should be quite proud of it. And it's um, good to see we're continuing to get some new listeners and vetgurus.com the place to go poke around there you can do a search there for any particular topics they could search for bearded dragons and it will pull up the previous episodes if you're just interested in bearded dragons for instance or birds or or whatever so a good little search simple search facility there and i think we need to do a bit of a shout out for our little shop as well we haven't done for a while while mark the vet gurus shop i see that a few people are visiting it, but not as many people purchasing our merchandise as we'd hope, Mark. And the <laughs> aim with that is to just give us a couple of extra dollars to help pay for the production costs. And so vetgurus.com, and you can see the link there, or just go to Etsy. It's on Etsy, E-T-S-Y, and, go, and just search for vetgurus, all one word, V-E-T-G-U-R-U-S. And, Brendan, and the, the quality of the, like... I'm just looking at my um, phone case cover now, and and um, and it's it's bloody awesome. I'm I'm very impressed with the vet, the quality of the vet gurus. Yes, uh, merch. they are. They are. It, it is good, and and um, I bought. I'm trying to remember what sort of things we bought, but I, I bought a I few different products distinctly there. Distinctly, no, seeing from, you from in my, the. For my staff, Mark. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And, and one of them, one of the staff wanted the biodegradable or the eco beanie, the vet guru beanie. And I had a look at that when I gave it to her at a Christmas party. And yeah, it was a good quality, good quality little beanie there. I, I actually, I do, I think I've got one of the other vet beanie, uh, the vet guru beanies as well, Mark. But, but there's like, there's a few other ones there that people can think about purchasing and supporting us and there's a couple of stickers there mark isn't there um just a plain logo of our sticker or there's even even a does it fart sticker mark which harks back to one of our very first episodes where we spoke about which species fart and which ones don't and there's also for you know especially for vet students and some great little caps there there's the the desexing caps there's a, the pair of them the you pay i spay one um and the don't wait car straight caps so 
Uh, just well, there's something for everyone. As all I can say, Mark. So get in there, spend a bit of money. Not only will you feel good about supporting us, but you'll feel good because you're wearing the Vet Guru's gear. So there's my plug. <laughs> good plug. Good plug. Oh, that um, there's no neat segue, but it, uh, I do think I'll go straight into news at this point, Brendan. And yes. um, my first news story is it's not. Uh, it's about um. Well, this seems to be happening increasingly, and I'm pleased about it, um, that there's uh, more and more areas, more and more organisations are building fences. Um, And this story is particularly about um, some fenced-off regions in uh, uh, western New South Wales, the um, Mallee Clifts uh, National Park, where they've reintroduced the Greater Bilby. The Greater Bilby is a, for our overseas uh, listeners, is a... Well, uh, marsupial, but it uh, uh, looks like a rabbit with a long nose, big ears, a longish tail, and really occupies the same ecological niche. Um, and it's really been smashed uh, by um, environmental change, habitat destruction, and uh, predators, particularly cats. And so fences keep and, uh, and efforts to remove those uh, predators from the fenced areas have made a profound difference. Um, and um, and just in the Mallee Cliffs National Park alone, the, um, the 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 size of these areas now is starting to get to be uh, very very significant, which will allow um, relatively large numbers of the Australia's Easter Bunny um, to grow. They they released um, eighteen of them, and um, and I think they're no no they released fifty of them. And now they're up over 120, um, and um, they expect the population to continue to boom um, and get up to 1,100 bilbies, the carrying capacity at Mallee Cliffs. And between the places that do have fenced areas, um, they, uh, you know, they expect that they'll they'll be able to get three and a half thousand of the critically endangered species, um, and the current estimated Australian population is a total of 9,000 and so that's going to add you know 35 or 40 percent to the total population Um, yeah so it is it's excellent it's a very good news story Mark and you did mention mentioned the Easter Bunny and we are coming up to Easter and I don't know whether you know a few years ago that um, it was here in Australia it was um, promoted that you should buy an Easter bilby um, instead of an Easter bunny. Um, so instead of the Easter eggs with the classic Easter egg, you buy a, a bilby and some of the funds used to go to some of these bil- bilby conservation efforts. But I th- I've been really seeing many of them recently, the last few years of you, mate. Well, I think that the uh, there was no trademark on them. That was my understanding. And, um, and I think uh, a number of companies who maybe aren't giving all the profits to Bilby Research have gotten into that space. And so, yeah, you can still get them, but um, I don't know. I don't, I, I, my suggestion is buy your chocolate in the shape of a Bilby and give money to the conservation efforts. And you'll feel warm inside doing that as well, won't you? <laughs> Just like purchasing something from VetCruise.com. <laughs> my my story is that I'd, I'd love your opinion on this one, Mark. It's, <laughs> uh, 
it's a it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's the change of a name of a particular species, um, which was previously known as the gypsy moth, moth, and which with today's um, sensitivities, um, they've decided to change it and call it the spongy moth, which is based on based on a label that that um, the rebranding because it has a little bit of a porous egg casing so that's why they ended up deciding on that name but it's all part of mark which i didn't even know this phrase existed decolonizing science did you know that particular phrase um, i have heard of it yes so yeah. the aim there is to make sure that we're not um, making slurs and, and having a more appropriate um, um, naming, naming, oh, I was going to say naming institution, naming method um, to try and avoid things like ethnic slurs um, for particular species. Jeez, there's going to be a fair few species that they really need to go through um, in order to cover that mark. Um, I always... Um, so I, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because if if you know if if the people that um, 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 regard gypsy as a as a as a um, as a slur on themselves, then obviously feel slighted by that particular particular name. So um, I I I think it's good if we avoid. I'm in people and, and um, um, it's such an easy thing to do, Brendan. Yeah, um, it just the reason why I'm sort of um, humming and iron with it is I, I, a broader topic, um, completely unrelated, well, sort of related to this. Is just it, it's so hard to keep up with some of the name changes with some of these species, um, other species anyway, and especially you and I sort of are into the reptile species, and um, you get a bit, little bit sick of um, every time you turn your head they've changed a name of a species that you thought you'd finally got it into your brain what particular name it was so they're constantly reassessing um, species names with them um, hopefully the spongy moth will stay the spongy moth from now on but um, yeah it's um colonizing um, you learn something all the time decolonizing science which you ever find it to the article um, is to create a more diverse and inclusive atmosphere in science so i presume it's much broader than just renaming species um, so yeah sorry mark you're saying no no i was going to say do you ever find yourself um with names that aren't you know that some of the names changes and uh not directed at um, resolving these issues of, of uh, uh, um, ethnic slurs or whatever, but they're just changing names for sometimes. I get stuck and sometimes a little bit pig-headed about, I know this animal by this name and I'm not going to yep. change just because. Do you, do you ever have that sensation? Yes, I do. Um, and I'll tell you what Good. it does annoy me when you have some people who end up um, you, know, you know who've who've who go out and name all these um, supposed new species after themselves, you know. Um, and I think you sort of know um, the sort of track I'm talking about here. But um, it's yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's all I'm going to say about that. Is that um, it needs to go through a committee, Mark? All of this, uh, and this goes committee, through. Yes, this goes through 
the Better Common Names Project, Mark. <laughs> so um, I bet you haven't um, heard of them or you haven't sat on one of them. No. Um, it's the Entom- it, this was the Entomological Society of America, the Better Common Names Project. Um, so it's, um, yeah, um, gee, I tell you what, that could be a pretty dry um, meeting um, <laughs> with them, Mark, when they're – but I, I expect there'd be some pretty um, heated, heated arguments, wouldn't there? I would agree. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I'm just looking through the um, proposed common names on their website at the moment, Mark. Um, they want to uh, – oh, gee, there's a, there's a fair number there that they um, want to re, re, rename then. But, um, yeah, anyway, so there you go. That's my um, – one and only in news article, Mark, about um, the constant changing, um, but sometimes for an appropriate reason, um, of names of species. Um, and that's where I suppose, um, you know, the other option with those ones is because so many of these species, the common names, there's several common names, isn't there? You know, the classic there would be our, our little lizard here we have here, Mark, the stumpy tail um, in Australia that has, you know, half a dozen different common names, doesn't it? Um, depending on what region of Australia you reside in, it's known as the stumpy tail or the pine cone lizard or the sleepy lizard, um, the shingleback lizard. What else is it um, known as? No, you've taken all the main names. Most but, of them. But, it's, um, but it is, and, and it's nice... It's that thing about language, isn't it? If you can make yourself understood, if the common name is what people know it as, then that's great. But if it um, has an impact on people's well-being, it's good that we change it. Yep. Tell you so what, I, should have, I should have said that at the start. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> summary. So our main topic this week, Mark, is I'm going to quiz you on a bird beak repair. Um, and I don't think we've touched on beak injuries or beak um, conditions in birds at all so it's a I think it's a pretty huge subject so we're going to narrow down and focus this week Mark on on primarily traumatic injuries to the beak but I suppose just before we do that you um, you might want to just briefly run over the sorts of type run over um, that's a bit of a um, uh, a bit, <laughs> a bit of a pun there. Um, some of the reasons why beak conditions occur in our bird species, Mark. Well, I was I was going to quickly touch on normal beaks to start with, um, and we, you know, most of our pet birds are parrots or finches, budgerigars and and canaries, whatnot, um, and those birds have a, a, a tough keratinized layer over the top of a germinal epithelium which sits on a hollow bony structure which is um you know that's their beak and um so trauma there's several you know many reasons that um that trauma can occur but there's other things that can happen as well the the other beak issues uh can occur because of uh, incubation because of what happens during hand rearing or um, they can be present at birth. There's a whole uh, range of disease processes that can cause problems with beaks, but um, we do commonly see trauma, um, particularly as a result of uh, you know uh, the strong beaks of parrots and the interactions that they can have that lead to significant trauma. So trauma, 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 trauma. Okay, so what are they classically presented 
um, looking, you know, what's the classic history with that patient that's brought into the clinic? So, well, let's let's ignore the wild what wild birds yes. that are brought in um, with trauma. So the pet ones. Um, what's that phone call? Um, what's that consult? Well, look, the typical circumstance is uh, birds of disparate size, um, you know, maybe a, let's say, a little elegant parrot or a turquoise parrot that's kept with a much bigger bird, another beautiful bird, maybe an eclectus or one of the cockatoos. And they'll get on really well for a long time. And then one day the bigger bird just uh, has had it and has a nip at the smaller bird and crushes or damages the beak. So we, you know, there will be... Like any traumatic injury, there will be a lot of pain and discomfort and bleeding and altered structure. And so that's usually the call we get. My big birds bit my, or the male birds bitten the female bird on the beak and caused some significant trauma. There's blood everywhere um, and she's in a lot of pain. What can I do? Uh, are some of these so severe that even bef- on the way to the vet clinic or before they've got to the vet clinic, it's deceased those birds or is that rare no that and that's this is a really uh you've you've asked a very insightful question brenda because um the beak um as we all know birds don't have um normal hands they have wings and so the beak does serves a useful purpose substituting for the you know the tactile sensory function that many other animals will have with their uh you know the ends of their forelegs um and as a consequence it is hugely serviced with uh, uh sensory nerves and um it is acutely intense it's not uh, you know it's pulling a fingernail out times a thousand when these birds so they are in the most exquisite pain first of all and um, being such a high metabolic rate organ um, there is a significant blood flow and uh, and some significant vessels and so it the degree of trauma um, may in fact be so severe that it compromises the bird uh, so that it does pass away we've definitely had birds who bleed into the uh, the the sinus within the beak, which then overflows into um, the nasal cavity, um, and the birds can asphyxiate on the blood that uh, that's the result of these traumas. So it is a life-threatening injury, without a doubt, Brendan. Nasty, nasty, nasty. So I'm going to jump to your first decision of what you do with that patient when you have that in the consult room? Well, I think the, the key thing at that early stage um, is is pretty much a quality of life question. Um, there are going to be certain injuries um, that we can be reasonably confident we're going to be able to manage and that the birds have a good chance of, um, you know, a long-term successful outcome. Um, there are definitely injuries where that's going to, that the, the chances of a, a successful outcome are lower still there but not as high and we're going to have to ask the bird to go through much more so having those detailed discussions with the um the owner who has an emotional attachment to the that bird and and um 
allowing them the space to come to a decision um, that's in the bird's best interests and considering humane euthanasia, um, it, it's, uh, you know, that's a very early decision to make, I think, because um, it is possible that a lot of time and money and emotional effort is spent and you have a bad outcome. And is it usually easy to determine then? Is it pretty clear cut when you to decide, okay, this one is time, we have to put it to sleep? Or is there a wide sort of margin of uh, maybe we can fix this one or save this one um, or maybe maybe not um, and, and factor in things like costs um, with some of those? I think there is a wide um, margin and particularly if people have considerable resources in terms of funds and time, um, there's the birds themselves, I find, uh, once they're over the acute phase, they are very adaptable. And we do see birds in the wild who have abnormal beaks who survive pretty well. They do make adjustment. Um, so it is a little bit of a, um, a difficult one at times to know what the right thing to do is. Another complicating factor, Brendan, is that many of the small birds, um, there, there seems to be two phases to the, the, in my experience, two phases to the mortality risk in these birds. Um, and particularly for those little birds that might have an avulsed beak where a large bird's cracked their upper beak off, for example, um, there's a real risk, as we said, in the, the early stages of them dying. But if they get over that, um, there seems to be a time three or four days down the track. The birds uh, uh, are, are on excellent pain relief. Um, there's some wound management that goes on. Uh, but there seems to be a second phase where um, I suspect there's some shifting of, um, of the clotted material in some of these birds that uh, may end up leading to pulmonary thromboembolism. But there is that second phase where the birds will pass away. And um, so it's not just getting them past the first phase. Um, it's also making clients aware that you could be two or three days down the track and, and the birds looks like it's going well and then it doesn't make it. Yes, yes. Okay, so we fill them full of pain relief. What do we do? I'm going to jump around a little bit here. What do you do as far as getting nutrition into them? Forgetting about repairing that beak or, 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 or controlling what's happening there? Assuming, you know, the bleeding stopped if we had bleeding. Um, it, it's um, really, this is such a really, really important question because um, this is often a, a compromise, further compromising factor. The bird won't heal because it won't eat well. And even with excellent pain relief, there is often, um, you know, a, a tendency for the birds to not eat very well and maybe even not maintain their hydration status. So um, soft silicon feeding tubes are absolutely critical and the ability to use those, um, you know, and this is where wonderfully experienced nurses come in handy. Um, it, we don't use crop needles with these guys. Obviously, the metal of the crop needle is a bit of a danger for the beak, uh, the traumatised beak, and so we tend to use soft tubes, and it does take a little bit more practice to manipulate those into the the crop and, and feed the bird for the first few days. And somebody will be thinking... What, Mark, why isn't Mark talking about putting in an esophagostomy tube or equivalent in these birds? Look, the, 
there, and it's a good question because we have uh, placed uh, um, uh, tubes into the crop space, um, and it uh, it mm, has. It's just the bird birds can get access. The bird can reach down and muck around with the wound there, and then you've got to add a an Elizabethan collar to protect the spot at the tube where the tube goes into the crop um, and you're then it's you've got to be spend a bit of time at the time you remove it they don't close up as easily as some other esophagostomy tubes and you've got to uh, put a couple of sutures in two layers so it's a pretty significant undertaking to do that and we generally find that that's not necessary to you know maintain the nutritional and hydration status of the bird Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I put that question in because, um, you know, it's commonly not, commonly de dealing with, you know, dogs and cats would be throwing those into them um, or, or nasal, you know, um, gastric tubes w with them. And I think, why can't I do this in a bird? Obviously, we're not, not going to probably do a nasal um, tube <laughs> in them um, with this, this condition. But yeah. Okay. So we get, and how often are you then doing that nutrient? How often are you feeding it with that soft um, rubber tube? Well, it depends on the species, but um, generally we're talking about three times a day for a cockatiel-sized bird um, that we want to um, be getting, uh, you know, the, the nutrition and hydration in together. Um, and that would be about how frequently we're medicating them. So um, we're trying to decrease the stress on them by handling them minimally. Yep. Um, and But also make sure they stay in positive energy balance so that they're not, um, you know, that the the tissues that need to heal can get underway and start doing that. Okay, so let's deal with this beak. And I know there's a huge range of conditions that we can potentially have and there's some pretty fancy hardware that people use to try and correct some of, or, or repair some of these injuries with them. But do you want to just run us through some of the more common ways you've dealt with them and... and um, I think you hinted at some of these animals um, being just um, we we just want them pain free. We want them functional, and we don't have to have a perfect repair with some of them. So, what's some of the options you've you've done with these that's, that have worked or have not worked? Well, I think the key thing to talk about here is um, the role of prosthetics, and so we've definitely used. Um, uh, you know, dental acrylics. Uh, we've used a, um, a, a number of uh, we, um, and I think one of uh, your friends and colleagues has done the same thing. Used a three D printed structure um, to allow normal function. I think the key thing about these um, is that they should be reserved for relatively short term um, services, and they should be. Um, uh, you know, short-term or very, very rare species. I think that for most birds, prostheses are not going to be a long-term solution. They look good on the news, on the social media, um, but they rarely work uh, very well. They frequently get um, yeast and bacterial infections under them. They're difficult to manage. Um, they alter the airflow in the sinuses and can add to respiratory problems. So we're tending to use uh, prostheses um, or uh, dental acrylics to create a beak structure as only a temporary solution. 
And we're aiming for, uh, in most instances, um, some form of wound care, particularly if the bone's not damaged underneath, some form of wound care that we can allow the germinal epithelium to form a, may not be a perfectly normal beak, uh, but a beak structure that the birds can use and as I said they're very adaptable they're very good at uh, taking those um, uh, slightly misshapen beaks and using them almost as normal. So how long does that process take you're saying that they're very adaptable and respond if everything goes to plan Um, how long does that healing process um, occur over so what do you tell the client as far as that and I know there's a you know, a huge range of degree of injury for these traumatic cases with these beaks. But um, what's a bit of a ballpark with some of these as far as when they're back to function? When, when one, when they can go home, and two, um, when when they're out of the woods, and that that we have some semblance of of solid beak back. Well, a good example would be um, an eclectus parrot, a female bird that uh, the male bird got upset with and um, and damaged her beak. And he, eclectus parrots have a relatively um, sharp, pointy upper beak, and he did a neat uh, depression fracture um, on the side of her beak. Um, and, you know, we uh, were able to place a wire, a thin uh, piece of wire, Kirshner wire, to pull the depressed fragment up and realign it. Um, and so to get her over the acute phase was probably five days, six days, um, and she was in hospital for the first three of those. Um, but it took the best part, and we were able to remove the uh, the small piece of wire after about um, eight or ten weeks, um, and the, then we could watch the scar, if you like, the the damaged area of epithelium move down the beak um, and eventually be worn off. And that took 10 months before we got to the stage yeah. where that bird had a normal beak. It's a bit of a... And I presume you have that discussion fairly early on as far as the, the long, long recovery period with these um, patients and choosing the client um, to make sure that they're dedicated enough to to nurse that bird through that period. And it's off the difficult thing and that you're exactly right, that communication at the first instance and making those decisions um, about how intensive it's going to be and how much resources people have to throw at this sort of a case, those discussions have to be had with the client at a very early stage. And it is really difficult because um, these are cases where often um, the clients have a degree of, um, of guilt because they've had these birds together they've known maybe they've been having the birds have been having an argument or um, maybe they've put um, cages adjacent to each other or they've let a bigger bird wander around um, near a smaller bird's cage they've kept them separate but the big bird has managed to grab onto the smaller bird so there's often a degree of guilt and I always find that um, that that's a factor when talking to clients that often makes them well, contributes to decisions they may later regret. And so we have to be very, very clear um, about the risks and uh, and take that guilt out of it um, so that that doesn't influence people's decisions or expectations. Mm. Um, 
jumping around again. How many of these do you need to worry about infection, or is it not an issue with them? If if it is a big issue with them, what what are your basic choices as far as antibiotics? Well, I think the the they're just like any other. Um, you know, if they're if the bone underneath is fractured, it's just like any other um, open wound. I do find that um, infection is a worry, but not as much as you might expect. And a lot of these um, uh, um, fractured uh, um, bones, the maxillary fractures, um, they um, do pretty well with um, simple broad-spectrum antibiotics for a relatively short period of time, particularly if um, the wounds are well cared for and cleaned in the first instance. Um, It's not an overwhelming problem, but just a reason to be concerned. Um, So, yeah, definitely um, treated like any other wound, but pleasingly the increased blood flow and um, the the nature of the importance of the area means that they do tend to have significant protection. I always worry about those um, changing airflow in those sinuses though, Brendan, and I worry about the clots that might build up inside. Uh, And so antibiotics are an important consideration. Um, And, you know, we don't tend to talk about dose rates, but I would often use um, amoxicillin uh, at a bird dose rate in these cases. The bugs that contaminate those areas are often sensitive to um, amoxicillin. Um, It's just important to use the bird dose rate because it's uh, significantly higher than the one most of us small animal veterinarians would be uh, familiar with. Um, Using that dose rate is just not going to have any effect. Yep. And... What do you do? What What's the advice for repair of these bird beaks where we get a, f- a semi-functional um, repair in the long run with it? It's not, not painful anymore. It's not going to improve anymore, but it's a bird that may struggle a little bit with with um, eating. Um, do you get many of them? And, and, and what do you do to help oh, that? Yes. Well, the, 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 there's a couple of factors going on there. The first one is that um, obviously many birds would, you know, have to um, de-husk the seeds they eat, um, and they might well be able to prehend that food and even ingest it. But they, there are some of these beak injured birds that have recovered can't any longer dehusk the seeds nearly as well. And particularly those birds that have an avulsed beak and so end up not having a beak, either an upper or lower beak at all, um, those birds obviously can't break the husk off the seed. So they need to um, be trained onto one of the formulated diets. Now, those diets are good and healthy, and I recommend them for birds that have normal beaks, but um, they become essential for the, those birds that uh, that might have trouble managing the fine detail of, um, of uh, you know, the normal processing of food going into the mouth. So back to square one, roughly what percentage of these would you see and you may mention it at the start of the podcast, that end up being euthanized? I would probably say about um, a third of them 
we would see um, uh, be euthanized. And um, and obviously they're the birds that have um, the most severe injuries and are likely to take the 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 uh, the most uh, significant efforts to get right. Um, but there is a good solid two thirds of them that uh, um, with relatively um, uh, modest efforts um, at uh, wound care and uh, um, appropriate care of that germinal epithelium are going to return to uh, good normal function. The other thing that uh, maybe you were hinting at before was um, that some of these beaks, though, because the the germinal epithelium has changed and maybe scarred up, um, the birds may well not wear the uninjured beak very well and so may need some trimming of that intermittently and they often need uh you know they often can't apply the same pressure to the the healed beak um so um it is always worth mentioning that if everything goes well the bird may still need once every um three to six months the the beak trimmed to maintain perfect uh function uh, after the everything is healed Yes. Well, sounds like a lot of work, Mark, and a bit of a challenge, some of these ones. And the, the owners must be, as you mentioned, devastated when they see these because it's a pretty traumatic event. Trauma of the beak is <laughs> one, no, it's one of those, um, one of those dramatic um, cases that when they, when they're booking that patient in, you get them to come down straight away, don't you? Definitely, definitely. And um, the, the, the other thing to quickly mention is because um, there was one of your colleagues that uh, wasn't it in Singapore where that wonderful uh, repair was done with the uh, hornbill? Oh, yes, no, no, yes, yes. Yep. And um, that, those sorts of things, I think um, that's where, um, you know, keeping a an endangered species um, alive and allowing them to add to the breeding potential Um and where they have those resources that they can do that. And uh, and I know that was a 3D printed prosthesis that went on to the bird and allowed it to behave as a normal bird. Um, I think that's a very useful exercise. But for many of our uh, pet birds at home, we don't have all those resources and we need to sometimes be um, conscious of the life we're asking them to lead afterwards. Yep, and that's sometimes making a decision to stop, isn't it? Um, rather than trying to be a hero and, and getting out your 3D printer <laughs> with, with that case. Um, any final comments, Mark, before we get out of here? I think that um, that uh, these are good cases to work with, but uh, it harkens back to that um, communication. Um, and I always, the only other thing I wanted to mention before we go was um, please be aware when we do our um, bird examinations and we get those history sheets and people talk about, um, you know, I've got an Indian ringneck and I've got this species and that species as pet birds, definitely emphasise to them this is one of the risks of um, these birds as they get older, um, as they get sexually mature, um, that's where more aggressive behaviour can occur. And, um, and even before it happens, if we can make people aware of it and put them in a situation where they can prevent it from happening that's a much better outcome too absolutely thank you mark we're out of here we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening
Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.